0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Real Leaders Podcast. I'm Sue Heilbronner, your host. And as you probably know by now, Real Leaders is the story behind the story of some of the most authentic, innovative leaders I know. Before we jump into this awesome episode, here's what I want to do. I want to make one ask. If you really like this show, if you listen to it, if you share it with your friends, if you tell your mom about it, please tell iTunes. Go to the podcast app on your phone, find Real Leaders by searching go to the reviews tab, and please leave a rating or review. It really, really matters. So thanks for taking that extra two minutes. On to the show. Today, we're joined by Devin Hibbard, the founder and CEO of Bead for Life, which is a very, very interesting organization located here in Boulder, Colorado. Devin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sue. Great. Well, you may or may not know that the first thing we do on The Real Leaders Podcast is we ask our guests to give us their three-minute life story. So go. (laughs)
1: Well... Before my life story started, it's important context to know that my parents met in the Peace Corps. So I was kind of conceived as this little Peace Corps baby and grew up very much not with guilt to go into law or be a doctor, but to save the world. So I kind of grew up with this save the world complex. When I was in college, I um, ended up dropping out for a year and going to Nepal And the first day that I was there, I just have this visceral memory of driving through up the river valleys and thinking, oh my God, I have no idea what the world is like. You know, all the things that I thought this idealistic young woman, and I just realized that I knew nothing. And that was really the start of my education, I think. How old were you then? I was 20. Okay. Yeah. And so that really led to me continuing to try to have experiences internationally. I lived in India for some time and really to understand that I knew very little and that I needed to learn from people around me and to also just be humble. So fast forward a bunch of years, my mom and stepfather who is a doctor were in Uganda. He was doing HIV AIDS work there. So we went to visit them and... Um, My mom and I and our family friend, Ginny Jordan, met a woman in a slum rolling bits of paper into beads, and she had no markets. She was a refugee from northern Uganda, and she sold us a couple things, and we went on our way and had no idea that life was about to change. But people loved the jewelry. They kept asking about it. They kept wanting to buy it. And finally, we thought, how can there be no markets when she clearly is making something that people are interested in? So we went back. A hundred women showed up, about 500 kids. It was a crazy, crazy day. And we bought jewelry and we brought it back here. And between the three of us, we had not one day of of experience selling a product. None of us were business people. And what we found is that- What year was this? This was in 2004. Okay.
0: So the internet existed.
1: The internet existed. People loved the story. They liked the beads, but they loved the story. And so we kind of mucked around all summer and and shared beads with our friends and you know had some people over and served wine. And a friend said, "Let me put up a website." And we came together at the end of that summer of 2004, and we thought, you know, we had no idea. The three of us, we had no idea that the world wanted us to do this product thing. But it seems to be that there's a lot of momentum. And so we decided to start bead for Life with no budget, no strategy, no staff, no office, nothing. And about three months later, O Magazine, Oprah, force of nature, ran a tiny article and we sold $90,000 worth of beads in six weeks. And that was the beginning of bead for Life.
0: So is Bead for Life a for-profit or a non-for-profit or something else? Bead
1: for Life is a non-profit. Back in 2004, B Corps didn't exist. It was really for or non. And so we chose to be a non-profit at that point. But for the first 10 years of our existence, we ran as a business. We have been self-funded for most of our lives. So we are a business and a non-profit sort of with a very clear mission of helping women get out of poverty all rolled into one organization.
0: And when you say that, I mean, yes, it's great. It's great to have a nonprofit and to have the awareness. Some people don't get all this that a nonprofit still needs to be sustainable. And that's what you mean, that you run it like a business. Can you say a little more about that?
1: Bead for Life, our mission really is to help women living in poverty to change their lives. And they do that in part by making the beads, so they earn money. But also, we have developed entrepreneurial training as our core program offering to women. So we are training women to become businesswomen. At the same time, we bring the products that they're making, the jewelry and a host of other products, to the global north, to to the United States and Canada. And we sell them to people and we educate them about extreme poverty. And that earned income, the money we generate from sales of beads, um, funds over half of our operating costs each year.
0: After this thing took off so much, was there any discussion about whether or not you wanted this to be a for-profit or did you always keep your mission orientation primary?
1: We have had this conversation many times. The mission has always driven us, absolutely. One of the things that's unique about Bead for Life is that we didn't actually come in with a plan. We, had no, we kind of backed into this organization. We didn't know what we were doing at the beginning. And because of that, we really created a program that was responsive to our customers. And when I say our customers, I really mean the women living in Uganda, living in poverty. So our initial steps were very much guided by what was it that they imagined they could do with their lives. We never really thought that we should go through the trouble of reorienting to be a for profit, but we really looked at B Corp when that came because it seemed very much aligned with how we think of ourselves as an organization and sort of this very funny hybrid model. We are quite unusual as a nonprofit. I know very few nonprofits that have over half of their revenue through earned income. So oftentimes people look at us and they think we we look very strange. You know, we have all these. Um, sales costs associated with selling our products that um, are in a nonprofit budget, and it confuses people sometimes.
0: I see a lot of businesses out there that are built around this concept of leveraging the beautiful talent, artistry, and unique resources that exist in developing countries. Some of those, I think, are nonprofits, some of those are for profits. I, I think you were there relatively early, but there were a few, was it called 10,000? 10,
1: 10, villages, yes. Yeah.
0: Can you talk about where you fit in this landscape and what your perspective is of the landscape in terms of its impact globally?
1: When we founded in 2004, it's true there were a franchise of organizations called 10,000 Villages that sold fair trade crafts. At the time when we entered the market, my feeling is, is that we were quite unique, and we got massive media exposure in those early years. Oh, was followed by appearances on the Today Show, and we were on PBS NewsHour, and so we had some really amazing exposure, I think in part because we were quite unique at that time. This was before Tom Shoes. This was before Feed Bags. This was before all of those products for good, and um, so, I think it's actually an incredibly powerful um, market response that there are now so many products for good. Everywhere you look, you can find products that really are making a difference in people's lives and have a unique story. I, I kind of love that they are nonprofit, for profit, B Corp. You know, they sort of come in every stripe. Now, the downside of that is that there are now so many products out there that. Um, really understanding what the impact at the end of the day is can get diluted in a consumer's mind. And you think every product has equal impact on people's lives, and that is not true.
0: Hallelujah. Thank you. To say more about that, I think this is a really misunderstood point because there really is, there's a scoring system for nonprofits, but there's no scoring system for this kind of activity.
1: Yeah. So for example, um, at Bead for Life, uh, the way we structured our program for many, many years um, is that we, our definition of sustainability was not that women came in and earned money from us. Our definition of sustainability was that they graduated from Bead for Life and were sustainable in their local community without needing us because we'll go away at some point, we'll disappear. And we didn't want to create um, women who depended for their livelihood on Bead for Life forever. So we are unlike most fair trade companies that work with ten or a hundred women forever, and you know, season in and season out by their products. Our program evolved to be sort of a graduation model where we would train the women to make beads. They would come in, they'd start earning money. That money would both meet their immediate needs, so now all of a sudden their kids are in school and they're feeding their you know family regularly, but also that they saved some of their money in order to start a business, not focused on beads this was vegetables or shoes or whatever it is they wanted poultry rearing and then after 18 months they would graduate from bead for life and leave us and in that way over 12 years we have been able to put over 2500 women through our program and help them really start their own businesses become small-scale entrepreneurs and leave bead for life to be truly sustainable so uh, for me, that's the definition. And if you look at that impact compared to many other sort of products for good, lots of those companies work with fifty women. And I'm not saying that that's not good, but the scale of impact that you see is is just you know different leagues.
0: One of the things that I end up talking about a lot is companies that want to create a social impact aspect to their business. But I'm going to use business. We'll put that in quotes. You've already said your nonprofit is really a business, which of course it is, but that they want, you know, they want to do the Tom's thing. They want to give something back. They want to do a one for one program. They want to give 5% of proceeds, whatever that is. When I have these discussions, and I've spent a little time with Sir Richard's Condom Company, so I've had a little bit of exposure to this thinking and also to how it looks in the financials when you do one for one, which is an incredibly expensive project, unless you the one you give is different from the one you sell mm-hmm. in, in terms of cost which isn't really possible for condoms because you know a condom has to fulfill <laughs> some basic requirements. In any event, what I tell entrepreneurs about this is don't think that your giving approach is actually the thing that's going to sell your concept or your product. Your concept or your product has to sell itself and whatever you give or whatever social impact activity you engage in is a secondary or even a tertiary component of people's buying decision. And I wonder what you think about that theory.
1: I think it's just true. I don't even know if it's a theory. I mean, if you can't compete based on your product being superior to other products in the market, you'll fail. And it's one of the reasons why I think this, this sort of social product um, industry has taken off is now there are amazing products out there. And so no longer can you just say, well, we're helping so-and-so, you know, community and wherever, and um, therefore you should buy out of pity Um, You know, buying out of pity is a terrible marketing plan. And so I I do think that... You started without a marketing plan. Would that have been better? Or
0: I don't know. I'm just kidding. All right, go ahead.
1: I I just think that, um, as you say, I think it's actually having a social mission I think it resonates with a couple people. I think it's a marketing strategy to appeal to a certain consumer group. Certainly there's lots of evidence that millennials are really looking for their products to have impact. Um, and I think it's also important to your employees. So I think that there's great reasons to do it and they're not, um, they're not just incidental. It's the right thing to do, but you can't build an empire on that.
0: Mm. How many employees do you have at Bead for Life?
1: About 35 on two continents. Wow.
0: And the folks that are, is that divided? Like the folks that are overseas are handling most of the training and the people here are handling most of the business?
1: Yeah, the team in Boulder is primarily doing all of our sales, marketing, fulfillment. Um, We we do our own um, inventory fulfillment accounting, but I have a team of 20 amazing colleagues in Uganda. I just moved back from Uganda about two weeks ago, and they are the tip of the arrow of delivering incredible programming. And we are actually in kind of an amazing evolution of our organization because we have developed this entrepreneurial training that was really born from our bead making program, but in the last five years, We've taken those same elements of helping women live in poverty, get the tools of how to become entrepreneurs, as well as a lot of mentorship to build their confidence. And we have spun off something called the Street Business School, which is a six-month entrepreneurial training program that is not focused on beads at all. And we are now in our first year of scaling that to reach a million women worldwide in the next 10 years.
0: Is that served digitally
1: primarily? No, it's very much um, delivered one-to-one, and the way that we can reach 1 million is that we are actually training other organizations who are already deeply embedded in the community serving women living in poverty in how to use our model to reach the women directly. But our, I mean, this model, when you're serving women living on a or $2 a day, they they don't read much less have access to digital content and so the confidence building piece which is very much one-on-one visiting their family sitting with them and their children is core to what we do and so um, we think of it as a high touch model that we are replicating around the world through other organizations that are already experts in the community
0: got it that's awesome Devin when you think about training women in Uganda on issues tied to confidence Versus training your female employees here in Boulder, Colorado on issues that pertain to confidence. What's similar and what's different?
1: Wow, that's a great question, Sue. Um, I think there's a lot of similarities. The women that we train in Uganda obviously are incredibly poor. It's hard to wrap our head around what does it mean to live on a dollar a day, on two dollars a day. What that means for many of the women that we serve is that literally, um, they are not eating three meals a day. You know, There might be times in the month where they only eat once. There might be days when the entire family skips eating any meal at all. Generally, their children are not attending school, or if they're attending school, they're very, very poor government schools. Sometimes women are making decisions like instead of getting the medicine that I need because I'm HIV positive, I'm going to instead use my money to feed my children this month. So really, really tough decisions. And these are women who have their whole lives been told that they're nothing. You know, they've never really had anybody in their lives who said, we believe in you, you can do it. They probably grew up with parents who were not supportive. Many of them have suffered domestic violence. So the level of um, disadvantage that they face in believing in themselves as as not only people, but entrepreneurs is a big barrier to overcome. That said, most of my staff are women and um, many of our customers are women and and I think we all struggle with some basic fundamental challenges at the end of the day, which is around, you know, who am I to whatever? Uh, who am I to be an entrepreneur? Who am I to run a, a big company? Who am I to have 35 employees? Um, and so I feel like it, it, my journey as a, as a woman and as a leader um, mirrors so much of what we do from me all the way down to the women that we serve in Uganda
0: just trying to schedule this conversation, I think took four or five months. And I just would love to hear a little bit about your life. You mentioned that you just moved back from Uganda. These are really different places to live, Boulder and Uganda, in a lot of ways. So just talk a little bit about your life and how how this work, which sounds pretty all-consuming and has been happening for essentially all of your adult life, how it integrates with other parts of your life.
1: Okay, so I have a husband and two boys, five and 10 years old. And um, literally, uh, two weeks ago yesterday, we moved back from Uganda, we were there for about a year. And I have lived on and off in Uganda for the last 12 years, almost half of that time. It's been in three different chunks. But it is amazing to me now, I actually feel incredibly privileged to call these two places home. I feel like there are not many people on the planet who have An intimate sense of being able to just go back and forth between radically different realities relatively easy and the first time that struck me was when I I flew to Uganda and I got in a car and I drove on the other side of the road with the steering wheel on the other side of the car and I knew exactly where I was going and it didn't feel strange at all and at that point I thought oh my god you know I've really now have bridged these two very different worlds Um, so mostly I feel really privileged this last year in Uganda, for me, there was something really raw about it that um, was unique in my experience there. I hadn't quite felt this in my past um, times there. And I think it had to do with raising two children there and realizing that even though we don't have a huge house or, or, you know, it's not like we, we live really extravagant lives, it was still much more than most people had. And just realizing that I have the resources to do whatever I need to do to keep my kids safe and that most of the women we serve in Uganda don't have that. Um, There's that heartbreak and living with that every day was hard for me, a challenge.
0: Do you view it as additive to your role as a mother of these boys to give them this exposure? It sounds like your parents also gave that to you. Is it additive, or do you, is it a compromise to at least for your seven year old to take him out of where he would be in school here in the U.S.?
1: It's absolutely additive. Uh, he's ten now, and he um, so my boys are five years apart. And after my second son was born, so so it would have been like six years and one year old. We went back to Uganda, and my older son, we, you know, long flight. You know, we'd been traveling for twenty four hours. We got in at midnight to Uganda, and We thought they'd conk out on the taxi ride into Kampala. He was wide awake. Both of them were actually looking around and looking out in the night and all the candles burning and little kerosene lanterns. And um, we get into Kampala after an hour drive and he turns to us and he says, mom, dad, when I turn 18, I just want you to know that I'm bringing my little brother and we're moving back to Uganda. (laughs) So he very much thinks of himself as, uh, you know, as very deeply rooted in Uganda and Um, I think it's absolutely additive, the perspective that he has, and sometimes even just what he'll say in a conversation is amazing and fascinating. And, uh, I, I think he sees that value as well.
0: As you look now, how how old are you now?
1: 44. Okay.
0: So 44, you've been doing this quite a while. You came up with the idea pretty early in your life. Is this what you're meant to be doing?
1: Yes, for sure. Uh, I mean, right now, bead for life is what I'm meant to be doing, but I absolutely feel like poverty eradication is, is my life goal. And when we launched this global expansion with the goal to reach a million women, that was really terrifying, because I had been working so much in the trenches for many years. And I think what makes us so good at what we do is that we have deep experience. We have tried and failed so many times and tweaked and changed and succeeded. And when I spoke the words out loud that it is my life's goal, next life goal, to help a million women lift their families out of poverty, that was terrifying because I was like, oh, my God, I just said it out loud. You know, like the world just heard that. And um, so it was really scary at first. And now it feels so powerful to have that intention out in the world and to just say "This this is what I've said to the world and this is what I'm pouring my heart into doing.
0: When I hear you talk about this, I realize, and I'm a little ashamed to say this, I realize that there's a sense, I've had other people in the past talk to me about international efforts surrounding women, especially since starting Merge Lane. And I think that at some level, I've had a sense of hopelessness around that. Like Mm -hmm. these problems are too big. The systems and the structures of these regimes and these countries and their disadvantages are just too large. And I'm not like, I'm not an afraid person. I'm I'm willing to embark upon big challenges, but I don't think I have the same level of conviction as you do that I can make a change on that scale. So first, am I just wrong? I mean, obviously you don't believe these problems are intractable.
1: Yes, you're wrong. Thank you.
0: (laughs) I actually feel this way about working with women in the United States that there's this weird sense of paternalism. Like we have some sense of what makes the most sense to grow even more successful female leaders. I have my own ambivalence around that. I think I have in my brain an even bigger worry about that issue as it pertains to other cultures. So tell me how you think about
1: that. Yeah. So, I mean the reason why I believe passionately that um, that change can happen well, I guess I would say two things. One is that I have seen it on the ground, and what it looks like is not me coming in and saying, Hey, you woman, here's the right way to do it. It is saying, Hey, let me help you put more money in your hands so you can decide what you want to do with it. And that, I mean, I am, I am I've come to entrepreneurism kind of late, late in my life, I think. Like, you know, I did not think of myself as an entrepreneur for many years, and I think it has to do with just seeing that power even in the hands of women living in poverty, when they get money, they do incredible things with it. And so I, I think the second thing that I would say is, I think many, many people in our country and worldwide do feel like, what could we possibly do? It's such an intractable problem. And I can tell you that I actually don't think we're ever gonna get there by sending more foreign aid or you know, having more big NGOs go in and hand out programs. I have just seen how much it corrupts the culture and the spirit of people when you just go give free stuff. And so we really try and structure our program as, you know, if you are ready to work really hard to change your own life, we're, we're willing to walk beside you, but we're not here to do it for you. And, and we struggled for a long time because in Uganda, it's very common to say, oh, Mama Devin, Mama Sue, you know, you're saving me. And I always hated that. Women would sometimes uh, uh, sink to their knees in gratitude. And I was like, stand up immediately. Like I I won't even shake your hand if you're on your knees. We're equals. And so we finally came up with the term coach. And so everyone in our program is, is called Coach, Coach Devin. And the women themselves, we call Coach. Coach Irene, Coach Hadija. And they call each other coach. So now there's all these coaches. And it's such the metaphor for the fact that we both have something to learn from each other.
0: You're really, really making me think more about this. I really appreciate this conversation. So here are these women. They're an impoverished culture in perhaps impoverished villages that you connect with. This might, this sounds like an absurd question that I'll probably end up cutting out because it's such an ignorant question. But if there is a limited amount of resources in these communities, uh, both natural resources, marketable resources, and money, how is it that teaching entrepreneurship so that you'll have sharper entrepreneurs within these communities can create a greater total thing?
1: It. That's such a great
0: question, So I, I shouldn't it, cut it not, out.
1: It's not... It's not ignorant at all and I actually think about this a lot because sometimes I think, uh, aren't we just taking business from the lady down the street and sending her family into poverty? And I, I cannot tell you that there's one study that I will refer to that shows that, that that's wrong. But what I can tell you is that intuitively, I don't believe that the world is a zero sum. And uh, you know you see that growing economies um, make more and more people wealthy. And so I do think that there is demand for quality products. And when I, when I say quality products, I'm talking about, uh, you know, three weeks ago, I was in a community, and there was one woman who's selling water out of her well, clean water. So there's a market for that. There's another lady who's selling vegetables. There's another woman who has jackfruit, which is this weird tropical fruit that I don't like very much. But um, she cuts little bitty pieces of it, and she knows that if she can sell it in a really um, sanitary way, that there's demand for that because there's somebody else who's selling it and it's got covered with flies. So. I believe that there is a market for all of these things and that yes, of course, there will be some market impact, but um, people need goods and services. They need food. They they need consumables. And we're really trying to position women to meet that demand in the best possible way.
0: That was a great answer to that question. If you can't tell and you can't, because this is an audio format, but Devin is like practically jumping out of her chair, actually, as she talks about this and It's just so nice to see that, knowing A, that this is such a giant thing that you're approaching in a really giant way, and B, that you've been working on it for so long. I feel really inspired by your passion around this. Thanks, Yeah, it's cool. So to that point, is there a time or a couple times in the past 12 years where something happened that really shook your confidence in what you were doing?
1: Yeah, had I known how hard this would be 12 years ago, I honestly don't think I would have started. It has taken way longer to get here, um, and we've had so many hurdles, and we've made so many mistakes. I think one of the hardest issues is that in Uganda, there's a lot of corruption, and it is not only something you see in government, but it's really a survival tactic that people use and have learned and so uh, we, we've dealt with lots of sort of official pay me on the side to make this go faster. And we try never to do that. Um, but the thing that's hurt the most is when the women themselves or staff have been involved in, um, in corruption. And that, it, it you know, for many years, it felt like a personal insult, like a personal injury, like they were doing it to me. And I had to realize over time that, um, unfortunately, this is how people have learned to survive. They've learned to game the system. And over time, I take it less and less personally when this happens. It, it still happens from time to time. So that's hard, the, you know, sort of the petty corruption. Um, it is hard to see how without people standing up and fighting against that, um, you, you can train a generation in a different way. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, there's not corruption right here at home that's not legitimate, you know, approved by the Supreme Court and whatnot. And and I've thought a lot about that, because I do think that there's kind of just scales of, of corruption in some ways that we have agreed to it here that we haven't agreed to in other places. But that everyday level is hard to deal with.
0: Yeah, right. That's just not something that's so in our consciousness at all in the way that you're describing it. So you started this entire thing, as you described, with no marketing plan, no real strategy, presumably not a ton of experience in building an e-commerce business. What about you or what about how you guys approach this allowed you to compensate? Actually, in some ways, like the piece and O in one respect is a catalyst. The other thing is that kind of thing can actually destroy an organization. So how did you manage it? And what about you makes you able to navigate circumstances like that?
1: That's a great question. I don't know if I've thought a lot about that. I think, um, I think a willingness just to dive in. I mean, when we had the O Magazine, we sold, uh, uh, you know, all those beads and we had people- Did you have them in inventory? Did you have them to sell? No, we literally were sitting in Uganda in the dark because back there, there wasn't a consistent power supply. So every like second day you would, you know, not have electricity at night. And when we could, we'd log onto the computer to look at this e-commerce site. And just every time you were able to refresh it, you know, it was going up and up. And we had one group that we had started working with. And so we were there every day or two buying beads hand over fist. We were smuggling them in people's backpacks back to Boulder. We had a volunteer here who had, you know, put up some pegboard in her garage. I mean, it was complete mayhem. It was totally insane. We were terrified and jubilated at the same time. So what allowed us to handle that? I think we... We actually started with a phrase when we decided to make this a nonprofit, we said yes to the river it felt like this was something the world wanted us to do. And although we did not have in any way the right CVs to, to pull it off, we said, who are we to say no to when the universe is giving us something? And so we said yes to the river and we came back to that phrase many times when we were um, in over our heads or didn't know what to do. Like, okay, well, here we go. So we very much made it up. We found dedicated people, huge numbers of people came forward because they wanted to participate. And, um, our mission statement actually, I think, is an important part of the story because part of our mission statement is that we create a circle of exchange that enriches everyone. And so for us, it was never just about the women in Uganda, although, of course, that was a primary focus. But we also really recognized that involving women here in North America to be part of what we were doing was incredibly powerful for them. And people started to feel like they were part of something that was bigger than themselves. And, um, for many years, one of our primary sales tools was through a home party model, a bead party. Um, and, uh, and so people were able to open their home and tell the story and share with their friends. And, you know, we have people who feel very much like they are, are part of, of for life in a very intimate and connected way. And and so I think that was part of our success as well. It wasn't just about dollars. It was really about creating a, an experience for people who were involved.
0: As I listen to you talk, I'm thinking about a podcast we pushed recently, an episode with Nicole Glaros, who's the chief innovation officer at Techstars. And we were having a conversation about companies that people create. And we were talking about the fact that sometimes we see women create companies that feel safe or really, really close to their own life experience. And Nicole had this great insight. I said, why is that? Why does it happen? Why, Why are women creating used stroller exchange companies more often than, you know, something, some gigantic big data or some incredible problem that we'd like to solve? And she had this great insight that it is safer. It's safer to stay close to something you know. So, if potentially women leaders are slightly more risk averse than male leaders, they are more likely to gravitate toward an idea about which they have more information. I thought that was a really great insight. And what this conversation is leading me to see is that I also play it safe. And I mean, I'm really happy with Merge Lane and the other things that I've done in my career and things that I'm working on now. And I realize that I don't think I have ever had the courage To tackle a problem, and I'll put problem in quotes, to tackle a dynamic as big as the one you've tackled.
1: It's interesting because I feel like I played it safe for 10 years because beads came to us and it evolved really naturally and we had money in the bank from Oprah. I mean, we (laughs) really, we never (laughs) went out to raise money. It started flooding in. I mean, we have a quite unique story. And we stayed small for many, many years. So for me, that moment of oh, actually, what my mission in the world is, is to take entrepreneurial training to women worldwide. And by the way, a lot of men are now coming in as we launch this this program. I never would have told you that 12 years ago. Uh And this last couple of years has been terrifying, terrifying to stand up and say, I, Devon, it's my intention to the world to, to reach a million women. And once you speak that out loud, now there's accountability for it. You know, now I have to do it. For me, that was really the tipping point The truth is, is that I only claimed that space in part because I was so pissed at 22 year old white dudes with a Stanford MBA standing up and saying that they had the best idea since sliced bread to solve poverty even though they'd never had a day of experience in the developing world with the people that they claim to serve. And finally I thought, why am I letting these guys take all the airspace when I have a decade of experience and I know deeply what will work and what won't work? Mm-hmm. And and truly it was that sort of frustration and anger that finally made me stand up and say, okay, there's something bigger that I have the unique capacity to do.
0: It's funny, that's very similar to the origin story for Merchling the accelerator and and investment fund that focuses on companies with at least a female in leadership that, that we are involved in. And it also started with me being really pissed off. So it makes you wonder like what great changes in the world, like what concussions actually happen that are really positive because people just get pissed off probably lots and lots. What do you have to learn right now? What's your next major learning edge?
1: I have so many things to learn in so many different areas. You know, in some ways, we are really shifting from being a product-based company. We will continue to be a product-based company, but we are really becoming a training company and at the same time becoming a social franchising company. And so all of this growth around replication and how we work with franchise partners or implementing partners or catalyst partners, as we call them, um, and how you drive growth and how you stake your claim in the market and make sure you keep your elbows out far enough that y- you know you have a unique piece of real estate. All those things are things that I know we need to do and it is really the area where we are learning as fast as we can. And, and just thinking about how you staff and oversee an expansion like that, how you keep the quality inherent in, in the training and in the implementation of your partners. So all of those things I feel like it's incredibly exciting. I feel like I'm absolutely at my, the very edge of my comfort zone and often outside of it in terms of all the new stuff that I have to learn as a leader.
0: Did you invent the term social franchising or
1: is that a thing now? That's a thing. That is cool. Yeah. I really love that idea. It's a really cool, it it takes um, from the world of business and really helps organizations that do have a social mission in some way think about how they replicate. And so we've actually pulled in some really smart advisors and consultants to help us um, set up our strategy and think about how we grow. Hard conversations.
0: And let's talk about hard conversations in this country that you've had with your employees here, or your people in your life. How do you handle hard conversations? You seem like you do a little bit of work on this self-awareness stuff. So what's your strategy?
1: I I don't like hard conversations.
0: Do you have them or do you (laughs) just avoid them for a couple of years? No,
1: uh, I would say my strategy is to try and avoid them for a little while until (laughs) they really need to happen. And then to take a deep breath and get them over with. And and, I mean, I call what we do love plus business. It's what we do with the women. We we bring love. We sometimes bring tough love and we bring business training skills. And I feel like that's what we do with our team. You know, we very much try to have a, a... Organizational culture that values each and every person. And part of valuing each and every person is sometimes having those hard conversations about, you know, wh- where it's not working. So I've gotten a lot better at hard conversations over the last years, I have to say.
0: Good for you. I have this theory that everyone essentially has received one piece of, and I'm putting this in quotes too, negative feedback for most of their life, usually starting as a toddler, Mm -hmm. there's early memories of it. And it's continued throughout your career. And every time you've done a 360 or you haven't probably had too many recent job reviews, but whatever, anytime people in your personal work life have given you feedback, it's been some version of the same thing. And you have worked on this thing for whatever, 40 years, you know, you're getting better at it. There's definitely growth. And that's still the thing that you get pushed back on. So what is it
1: for you? Being too far out ahead of everybody else and not thinking through what I need everyone else to know or what I need to create buy-in on before I'm ready and going off to the next thing.
0: So does that mean like, do you have a kind of a weak gene for collaboration or do you just feel like everybody should be caught up the way you are? Is that your experience? With yeah, that? I'm
1: impatient and I, I am Uh, I've already processed stuff a week ago or a month ago or a year ago that other people are just sort of getting to now or they didn't have the information in the same time that I had it because of whatever organizational issue and then I forget to tell them because I'm already past that and thinking about the next thing. So I have to be very methodical in thinking. I mean, every time I sit down with my management team, like, okay, what else have I done in the last two weeks or need to communicate so that everybody's on the same page and with me? Um, And still then, you know, people will say, Devin, slow down. You know, you wanted it to happen yesterday. It's not going to happen until next week. And, you know, it should be a month from now in an ideal scenario. So I go too quickly and I, I don't bring people along as methodically as I maybe should.
0: I've heard this from a couple other people, and then sometimes I've heard that the coaching for those people is to slow down. You know, I had this joke like, when was the last time someone told you to chill that you've actually chilled? Like, it doesn't work. You tell someone to calm down, they're going to lose their mind most of the time. So, is it the right thing for your organization or for your life for you to slow down?
1: No, I don't think slowing down is the answer. I think hiring really great people who compliment me is the answer. And I have. A managing director who I absolutely adore. And we are a fantastic team. And she, the thing that I like best about her is that she is absolutely able to say, Devin, you are wrong, or that's a terrible idea. Or, you know, yes, we can do that, but not until next year. And I need that around me. And I now hire for that because I am a big personality and I have a lot of opinions and they're not all right. But if I don't have people around me who are not afraid to tell me when they think I'm not right then I can get in real trouble
0: yeah so cultivating those people and also finding people who you tr- whom you trust right that their opinion actually is better than my opinion on this point yes. is is great yeah I mean I see that it's like it, for a personality like yours you, you're probably faster than almost everyone and sometimes it's wise to slow down because you should and sometimes it's probably not wise. And so finding those people who can help you delineate between those two things and cover off on catching other people up on data that other people haven't seen, that's of great service to you. Yeah. So the thing that I really want to take away from this conversation, Devin, which has been fantastic and went by way too fast, is just yes to the river that's uh that's the phrase of the day for me i really like that thanks for mentioning that
1: yeah absolutely awesome
0: thanks for joining us on this episode of real leaders radio and thanks again to our wonderful guest devin hibbard a co-founder and ceo of bead for life we could have talked for hours today devin if people want to learn more buy beads support Bead for life in other ways what should they do
1: beadforlife.org you can see all of our products and we are about to launch a website which is streetbusinessschool.org which will share many more details about our business training for women if you know of an organization out there in the world that is a good candidate for our training
0: great as always real leaders is brought to you by merge lane the company focused on growing female leaders and their leadership potential we have an accelerator class coming up in 2017 multiple women's leadership camps scheduled for next year, and also a kids' summer camp this August for incoming high school girls. Real Leaders also is sponsored by Anton Collins Mitchell, a Colorado-based audit tax and general accounting firm find out more at acmllp.com. That is a tough one for a podcast. Thanks for being with us this time. We'll see you next time at Real Leaders. And if you have any comments or feedback from me, please drop me a note at sue at com.